Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. With American art institutions increasingly looking at the long-neglected field of photography by African Americans, remember Aperture's Sarah Lewis edited Vision and Justice issue last year, and look forward to even the insistently white male-oriented National Gallery of Art presenting Gordon Parks' The New Tide 1940-1950 next November, this week's program looks at the work of two museums trying to tell a more complete story about America's art history. The Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond is now showing, like a study in black history, P.H. Polk, Chester Higgins, and the Black Photographer's Annual, Volume 2. The Black Photographer's Annuals were books that were created, published, and edited by black artists and that featured the work of black photographers. The annual was co-founded by Joe Crawford and photographer and editor Buford Smith, who will be the guest on the first segment of this week's show. The exhibition at the VMFA is curated by Sarah Eckhart. Like a Study in Black History is on view through April 15, 2018. It's the second in a series of Virginia Museum of Fine Arts collection rotations that explore the four volumes of the Black Photographer's Annual. The first was published in 1973. The final annual was published in 1980. In conjunction with the series of exhibitions, Buford Smith has granted the VMFA a license to present the four volumes of the annual online for two years. On manpodcast.com, we'll have links to each of the four annuals. You can expand each annual to the size of your entire screen and page through it. It's, it's pretty cool and very well done. Buford Smith is a social documentarian who was a founding member of the Kamoingi Workshop, which he later led. Kamoingi is a black photography collective. His work is in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the New York Public Library, and of course the VMFA. The Studio Museum in Harlem and the International Center for Photography in New York have held exhibitions of his work. The second segment will spotlight Teeny Harris photographs in their own voice, an exhibition that's at the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh through January 28, 2018. We'll tell you all about it when we get to the second segment of the show. First, Buford Smith, after the break. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, presenting Cindy Sherman, Imitation of Life through December 31st. Organized by The Broad in Los Angeles, this expansive survey of over 100 works makes its only appearance outside L.A. at The Wex. From Sherman's iconic untitled film stills through her most recent series of aging divas from the silent film era, Imitation of Life highlights the artist's engagement with cinema and celebrity and her career-long investigation of the influence of mass media on identity and ideas about women. The exhibition is accompanied by a star-studded audio guide featuring the voices of Miranda July, John Waters, Molly Ringwald, and more, and it closes a calendar year in which every artist featured in the Wex Galleries is a woman. For more information about the Wexner Center's programming, go to wexarts.org. See six Pacific Standard Time exhibitions in San Diego for free or reduced admission over Thanksgiving weekend by simply showing an ID with an out-of-San-Diego County zip code. Exhibitions include Art of the Americas, Pre-Columbian Art from Mingay's Collection at the Mingay International Museum, Memories of Underdevelopment, Art and the Decolonial Turn in Latin America, 1960-1985 at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, Point Counterpoint, Contemporary Mexican Photography at the Museum of Photographic Art San Diego, Undocumenta, at Oceanside Museum of Art, Modern Masters from Latin America, the Perez Simon Collection at the San Diego Museum of Art, and Xerografia, Copy Art in Brazil 1970 to 1990 at the University of San Diego. More information at 
pstlalasandiego.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents The Glamour and Romance of Oscar de la Renta, an exhibition celebrating the illustrious life and career of the renowned fashion designer. Nearly 70 ensembles sourced from de la Renta's corporate and personal archives, the archives of French label Pierre Balmain, private lenders, and the collection of the Museum of Fine Arts Houston are featured. On view through January 28th. Visit mfah.org slash de la Renta for more. The Getty's Villa Theater Lab features new translations of Greek and Roman plays, as well as contemporary works inspired by ancient literature. Don't miss the lab's latest production, Aeschylus's The Suppliant Women, presented by Rogue Machine Theater and running November 17th through 19th. When Aegyptus usurps Danaeus's throne, his 50 sons try to force Danaeus's 50 daughters into marriage, prompting Danaeus and his daughters to flee to Argos for sanctuary. The play's themes, still pertinent today, explore human rights, the continuing oppression of women, and societal reactions to refugees. Learn more and get tickets at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Buford Smith, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Glad to be here. How did the Black Photographer's Annual get started? How did it come to exist? It, it came about during, say, 1970, around 1970. During that time, I was an offset printer, and I printed, a friend of mine printed a little booklet of, of my photographs out of, the, out of appreciation of my work, and the book was called Photographic Images, and I'm jumping a little, that I just recently saw it on, uh, I think it was Amazon, not Amazon, but eBay, it's one of those places where the little booklet sold for $200. I was shocked. And that goes back years ago, so that just goes to show you. But out of the little booklet that it was, a, it was a, say, a five, five by seven by eight and a half, and I did photographs of my pictures. A friend of mine named John Dahl, he printed the little booklet for me, and I dedicated it to Roy DeCarava, who was my friend and, and a mentor, and also my friend Frank Sawyer, who owned a print shop. So out of that came the Black Photographer's Annual. Maybe about two years later, I mentioned to the members of Kamongi, which I was a member of Kamongi during that time, that I would like to do a book on Kamongi photographers. And I figured out it would cost maybe like $10 per photographer. I think it was about 12 members during this time. So some of them came up with the money and some didn't. And I collected some photographs and I did some shooting uh, copies, made copy negatives to, to, you know, to go to the printer, et cetera, to my friend John Dahl. And it just, for whatever reason, it fell apart and it never happened. So a friend of mine, Jimmy Manis, he was a member of Kamonki. He formed a group called, not a group, but a business called Jammy Productions out in Brooklyn. And during this time, he was doing uh, posters, you know, Black Power posters, uh, the Olympics with the fists up, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a section of, of the loft out here in Brooklyn where I was dealing with photography. So I told Jimmy, I said, well, the Black Power posters, he was going to colleges and selling them different universities during, uh, during this time. But for whatever reason, they stopped selling. So I told Jimmy, I said, you know what, maybe we should try doing the, uh, the Kamongi photographs that I collected years ago. And he said, oh, yeah, great. So I said, what, what we should do is call it the Black Photographer's Annual you know, based on 
Pop Photos Annual. They they would come out with an annual every year. It was called Popular Photography Annual. So I sort of said, well, let's call it Black Photographers Annual. So he said, great. So I started collecting photographs from you know members of Kamongi, and Jimmy was good at trying uh, is getting money. I have not been very good at asking people for money, but that was Jimmy's end. So we went around to a couple of people. And they said, well, you know, you only have New York photographers. It's only a, a few photographers in this, so you got to do a, a broader base. So that was one of the problems. That was uh, the main one was getting getting money, really. And so a friend of mine, Frank Sawyer, as I mentioned earlier, who owned the uh, print shop, he said, well, you know what, Buford? I know someone who would give you guys at least about $10,000 to do the annual, get it started. And, you know, we, he set up a meeting with uh, Jimmy and I, and so we went up, up to hall and meet this guy and he said okay i like you guys idea of doing this black photographer's annual and i would give you the money but you would have to do some work for me and we said what's that he said we well, have to do, uh, do some pornographic movies because jimmy was a filmmaker and, and we looked at each other you know we'd like to see the, the ladies but you know we don't want to get involved with, you know, pornographic movies, et cetera, et cetera. So the guy said, well, you know, that's that's my deal. You know, I can definitely give you the money, but you have to do this for me. So we said no. And this particular person, he was a, a like a hustler kind of guy. And he was just the definitely stereotype mobster, big, tall guy. He was at least 6'2", cigar, had expensive clothes, and he eventually died in prison. So that uh, tells you about him to a certain extent. <laughs> But we refused that and, uh, you know, the $10,000 offer. So the uh, Black Photographers Annual was put on the black the back burner. And Jimmy Manis went to uh, Guyana, South America. And so I had all the photographs for the annual, et cetera, et cetera. And my dear friend, who's deceased now, Joe Crawford, he said, Buford, if I came up with the money, would you still uh, want to do the annual? So I said, sure. So... Joe and I worked out something, so I gave him the uh, images, et cetera. So maybe about three months later, Joe Crawford came back and said, Buford, I got the money. Let's do the annual. So that's how it was started. So I always tell people that without Joe Crawford, the annual, the Black Photographer's annual would, would have never been done because he came up with the money. He got it through friends, et cetera, and and, and so forth with the money. And Joe was a draftsman. He wasn't a photographer. You know, he dabbed, uh, he had a camera, but he didn't really take any pictures or anything. So it's his love for photography why Joe uh, got involved with the Black Photographer's Annual. And he brought on board Joe uh, Walker, who was a, a writer for Mohammed Speaks. Uh, you probably know about Mohammed Speaks, a black uh, Muslim newspaper. So Joe Walker knew people through Mohammed Speaks. Plus, he was a, a writer for one of the uh, union newspapers. I can't think of which one, maybe 1199 or something like that. So Joe Walker took care of all the PR work, and he got in touch with the writers. He got in touch with James Baldwin and also Tony Morrison, uh, bless her soul, for giving us the, the, the send-off with the Black Photographer's Annual. She was a very helpful. And Joe Walker also got Johnny Williams, in fact, I, I think, I, yeah, I suggested Johnny Williams, and uh, and I also suggested Clayton Rowley, and Joe uh, Joe Walker got in touch with those people, and I was a little annoyed at Joe Walker when he interviewed Johnny Williams. He went over to his house in Jersey, 
And I was annoyed. I said, you know what? I really respect Johnny. Why didn't you tell me so I could go over there and take some pictures? So I never forgave Joe Hawkford for that. But he said, oh, the next time you, you can go with her interview Gordon Parks. But Joe Crawford uh, ended up interviewing uh, Gordon Parks. So there are four issues of the Black Photographer's Annual. In the, in the first one, there are five listed picture editors. And, and by the fourth one, there are fewer picture editors. You know, was it a collaborative effort of selecting pictures? Was it was it mostly you? How did you know what what I'm asking very awkwardly is how did you or you guys decide what would be in the book? Okay, let me let me back up with the editors. Joe Crawford left all the photography part to me. He handled the business end, and I you know dealt with the photographers. I chose all the uh, the editors from first volume to the uh, the fourth volume. But the first volume, all the uh, editors were members of Kamongi except one, and that was Vance Allen. And I chose Vance Allen because the uh, Kamongi members, we all thought I liked, you know, to a certain extent. We all street photographers, uh, some of us did abstract, et cetera, et cetera. So I said that Vance Allen would be a good mix in the group, and which he was. And that's how it came about with the first editors of the book. And it was a collaborative effort. But what happened in the end, it would it would boil down to Joe Crawford and I. We would be the one who would uh, have the final say on the photographs. And what happened a lot of times was that Joe and I would play good cop and bad cop. Because, you know, most of those photographers in the, in, in the annuals, we knew personally as friends. We, you know, you see people around. So they would say, well, why wasn't my photograph included? And I said, well, you know, I don't know, but you got to see Joe Crawford. Then Joe would say, well, you, you got to see Buford, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so we played good cop and bad cop with that. So it, you can keep that uh, on tape because everybody knows by now it's been 40 years or whatever it's, it's been. So that's how we did that. And with the last issue, I'll get to the third issue. I told Joe that the times are changing as far as uh, women's rights, et cetera, et cetera, that we should have a woman on the uh, selection committee with the photographs. So he thought of Jeannie Matusame Ash. I don't think she was Ash during that time. She might have been, but Jeannie Matusame. I knew her through Frank Stewart, because when I taught at Cooper Union in the 70s, that Frank Stewart and Jeannie, they were students at Cooper Union, so I knew Jeannie through Frank Stewart. So but I don't know what happened with that, but I don't know if Joe could get in touch with her or whatever, but uh, Joe uh, chose someone else, another woman that he knew that worked with Scholastic, Scholastic uh, uh, Magazine. So he chose her. So that added a, a woman to the uh, photography editors. But from the very first issue, we always had a woman. In fact, it was always me and Smith. She's been in every volume from number one to the to number four. And we didn't choose women in that sense that, oh, we got to have a woman. It only happened in the end when I suggested to Joe that we have to have a woman as a picture editor. That's how it came about with the woman being. And we had to get rid of Sean Walker. That That's another conversation. But we dropped him to get the woman editor on the, in the last annual. The, the pictures in... The first annual, in particular, are are very rooted in in street photography. Was that an intentional editorial decision, or is that just 
what the people you knew were were shooting were interested in? Well, it was just what the people we knew were shooting. And in fact, a lot of the photography we didn't know because uh, what happened, Joe uh, Walker would put ads in black newspapers for black photographers to submit their work. So that's how it came about. And if you notice, well, for me, I think volume one is, is, a, is a masterpiece as far as going. It's very eclectic. It's not just about jazz musicians or street photography, et cetera. It's, it's abstract. It's, it's, it's everything as far as I'm concerned. But we just told photographers, it, you didn't have to shoot the so-called ghetto or jazz musicians or, or whatever. Only thing we ask you to do is submit your best work. And then after they submitted the work, then we chose what we felt would would flow with the with the book, et cetera, et cetera. So it wasn't about, you know, we just got into photojournalism, whatever. We just chose what the photographers were submitting during that, that time. I'm glad you, you raised that point that it's not just pictures of jazz musicians. The, the first volume especially serves as a rejoinder to cliches about black American life and existence. It it is full of art historical references. There's a there's a picture by by Roger Tucker of a ferry in, in Newark, New Jersey, that is a riff on a John Sloan painting. The entire publication is in some ways an argument for a certain Americanness that is not confined to one community. Was that intentional? Must have been. Well, it it, it was because we not that we had to approve anything, but black photographers up to this day, and you can keep the tape rolling or whatever, is that we are ghettoized to a certain extent. Now I'm looking at the first annual. Now I'm looking at a photograph by John Pendehues. Page fifty-eight. Yeah. Is now this is something that was being done in 72 by John Pendyhue. So it's not about, you know, the ghetto and jazz musicians or whatever. So John was doing doing this kind of work back then. So we tried to have a, you know, eclectic, you know, book of photographs. And I, I think we did it. That's why I say this was, to me, is volume one is a masterpiece. The first two pictures in volume one are, are portraits. This is a time in American photography when when street photography is still a big deal and you could have chosen anything to open the book with but you chose to open the book with two portraits was was that a conscious decision where you did, did you intentionally try to include portraits I wish I could answer that more succinctly but the only thing that Joe Crawford and I and Sean Walker what we chose were the photographs. The layout was done by Vernon Grant. So you picked the pictures and other people picked the order. Right. We picked the pictures and Vernon Grant was the art director. He was the art director at, I think, CBS. If I'm not mistaken, he did the cover for Bruce Springsteen, the famous photograph with the guitar behind over his shoulder. Oh, Born to Run, yeah. Yeah, yeah Born to Run. I think Vernon Grant did that or he had something to do with that, that photograph. So Vernon Grant did the, uh, you know, connecting the pictures. We chose them, but then Vernon Grant did the layout. All except my essay of the Martin Luther King. I, I did that myself. So I'm guilty of that one. We're going to come to that in a minute. That's in the second volume. As you 
look back at the four volumes, do you see anything changing in terms of what photographers were looking at or maybe in terms of what y'all were selecting? Yes, you, you mean in, in, in reference to the photographers of today? No, I mean across the four volumes of, of the annual. From the from the beginning of the annual to volume four, were photographers interested in the same thing, or did you, did you see a progression of interests happening? When we got to volume maybe two, maybe three, but, but probably two, I told Joe then that I saw the quality of work by the photographers that were submitting work was not up to par. And I told Joe that we were on a, a slippery slope now because the work is not that good. And we could not keep publishing Anthony Barbosa, Azure Cowens, or Sean Walker, or Ming Smith in every volume. I mean, we'd like to, but then it looks more like a, a, some sort of a, a boys club, and we wanted to branch out. But the work just wasn't there because I felt that there weren't that many photographers, black photographers out during this time. But, you know, they they stormed the gates now. But during this time, they, they weren't that many out that we felt that was doing quality work, that who had submitted the work to us. You know, one of the best parts of, of, of each annual are the portfolios devoted to single photographers. How were those photographers and those photo essays chosen? Well, what happened was we never gave, like, say, submit 10 photographs or 12 or whatever. What we would do is go through a body of their work, and I think we would pick out maybe six. I got to go through the annual. I think it ended up being four, four or six photographs by each photographer who had a portfolio. And we put it together to see if this worked as a strong body of work. And that's how we came up with doing the portfolios. If you notice that the, the last volume, volume four, we only had 26 photographers. In volume one, we had 49. And volume two, we had 51. Volume three, we had 40. And volume four, only 26. As, as I mentioned, I think volume two, that's when I saw that the work was going down, the quality of the work. There, there weren't that many photographers out there, and we couldn't keep publishing Ming, Tony, uh, Alpha, Noir, et cetera. So that's where we, at volume four, we called it quits. One of the best portfolios in any of the annuals is your portfolio from volume two. The check is in the mail. <laughs> it's a really striking series of images, and I was hoping you would you could talk us through the essay, how you conceived it, and how it reads. And it starts with a photograph looking through a baked window. So I think this was done over a two- or three-day period. It was done basically in Harlem, in Central Park. And I started off with the reef because, you know, the assassination, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that, picture, that picture of Dr. King with, with the reef is an interesting picture for lots of reasons. It's interesting formally because the blinds behind the reef and Dr. King's picture push the wreath and the and the photograph of Dr. King up against the picture plane, and then you have cropped the name of the bank. It, the name of the bank is the Freedom National Bank of something, probably the Freedom National Bank of New York, but you've cropped out most of the word freedom. 
which strikes me as a really interesting and telling decision. Well, it was telling in the sense that it was, I won't say it because I've always been a person who, I'm not from the school of not cropping photographs. You know, I'm not Clutch A. Bresson or whoever. But that was done intentionally that there's really was no, no freedom, really. So you did catch on to that. Most people, <laughs> so they, they didn't see it with black folks. They, they saw it, but the uh, white editors that I, I took it around to, they, I don't think they saw that. Maybe they did. I don't know. But maybe that's one of the reasons why they rejected it. But that's another conversation. But yeah, that was that was intentional that, you know, here's a man who talked about peace and, you know, peace philosophy and Muhammad Gandhi philosophy. And he was he was murdered. I won't even use the term assassinate. I would say murdered. And so this this black photographer's annual volume two is 1974. So is this a picture that you'd had around for a while or was the wreath still up? No, that that was all a, a photograph during that time. So the second the second picture in in the portfolio is a man leaning against a a mailbox and and you know which I'm not sure they exist anymore but you know the the, the round topped mailbox that was so familiar. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, that everything all these photographs were taken in Harlem within within that week of the assassination of Martin Luther King. What about the man and the and the post office box appealed to you? That appealed to me because it, it was about sadness that he, you know, the sadness of Martin Luther King being assassinated or murdered, however you want to phrase it. And the woman with the button, the Martin Luther King button, it was just uh, about uh, integration or, you know, a, a white person involved with the assassination of the sorrow of the assassination of Martin Luther King being murdered. And the other photograph of the uh, now this was I don't think this was necessarily taken in that week of the assassination of Martin Luther King, the church photograph. So this is of a church window, maybe not a window, maybe a painted panel, and there are two holes in it, and it's a crudely drawn image of Jesus, but with with his arms extended, but there's no cross there. <laughs> right, no, there's no, no crop there. And that was a gift in the sense that it went along with, you know, Reverend Martin Luther King and the spirituality and believing in God, etc. Uh, someone threw a brick or whatever through through the window here. I don't know if it's a window, or what, oh, just a screen up there or something. But that fell in line with the assassination assassination of Reverend uh, uh, King, is being a spiritual leader and believed in God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you see what happens with him. And of course, the, the the police out there they're keeping you know the neighborhood quiet and no rioting, et cetera, et cetera. Let me let me let me go back to the the picture of of Jesus in the church for a moment. It, it's a picture that draws a really clear in the context of the portfolio. It draws a really clear relationship between human failing and viciousness and the maltreatment of of two leaders, Dr. King and and Jesus. And so what I think I hear you saying is that that was the whole point of the picture. That's that's why the picture was a gift. Yes, definitely. You put words in my mouth, but I'll accept them. <laughs> but uh, the, the spirituality, and here's uh, Jesus, a, a man of peace, and, and this is what you're doing to him. So that was that was all part of it. The the picture on the facing page of, of the, the Jesus in the church picture is a picture of, I don't know, six or eight policemen lined up 
at at you know they look like they're at some kind of event some are being very earnest and ramrod straight and a few are not why that picture well, the event was that you know, uh, black people in Harlem were, you know, very disgruntled uh, about what was going on, and they were yelling at the, uh, at, the at the cops and, you know, saying, you know, F you, and, uh, you know, you kill them, you know, the, the, the usual, I won't say usual bit, but they were just very unhappy uh, about that, and that's why the cops were there. They were, you know, keeping the peace, allegedly, whatever. Did it matter to you when you made the picture that two things, one, that, that all the cops are white, and Secondly, on the left-hand side of the picture, there there are two cops. One older cop who's kind of slouching with his hand in his pocket with the white handle of his gun prominently portrayed, and a younger cop next to him who is standing at attention. Well, that photograph I was a little leery of taking because I was relatively close, and that gun was very prominent, and I had to get that gun like that. So I don't know how many photographs I um, probably just took one. I usually take one photograph of certain images that I, I feel are very strong and not like fillers. But I was relatively close to this uh, policeman, and he didn't seem to notice me, but he was so busy watching the other other people. But as you can see on his expression of his face, no one seems to be very upset. They were very mild. So that was that photograph. And the next page... This gentleman was, you know, they were, I don't know if they were rioting, but they were disturbing the peace. I don't know. Yeah, let me, let me describe the picture really quickly. It, it's kind of a blurry action image. What appears to be a cop it has a man in his right hand. He's holding the back of his jacket. The man is wearing a hat. His arms are outstretched. And it reads like a police kind of leading a person away, but maybe not in a super aggressive way. Yeah, he was leading him away because this gentleman was yelling uh, something about, you know, the assassination of Martin Luther King and getting the people riled up. And the cop just came over and grabbed him and told him to, to move on. And in one of the reviews of this photograph, they mentioned that the cop was white. To me, it's obvious that this was not a white policeman. But I don't know. That's just, I'll, I'll leave that alone. Maybe that would have added to it by him saying the cop was white. But to me, it was, it, you know... It's obvious that this is a, a black policeman who was leading this man off. The, the next picture on the facing page is is a man crying. It's one of the most emotionally intense pictures in any of the portfolios. Right. This is one of my favorite photographs and one of my uh, iconic images that's been widely published. And the man was crying. What was actually going on here is this was on 125th Street and 7th Avenue. I never will forget this. There was a white delivery man, middle-aged delivery man. He had delivered something to one of the stores there, and the uh, the people w was trying to get to him. And he, this man was crying, don't, don't bother him. Martin Luther King wouldn't want this, so that's why he was crying. He wanted peace, not you know for the for the, the other people to you know to riot or anything. They were throwing rocks and garbage cans at this man, and he hopped on the back of a, a pickup truck. And uh, that's how he escaped the, I don't know, term mob, but that's how he escaped the uh, the people who were yelling at him. And this is why that man was crying. He was something that Martin Luther King wouldn't want this. They wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't want you to harm this man. There are other images of him and other people, you know, around this scene. But I edit this one out because this is one of my favorite uh, photographs. Did you print 
this picture in a way to emphasize the whiteness of his shirt? No. If anything, I held back the uh, the darkness of his face because there's a tear that you can't see it in this in the printing here. In, in the actual I, print. I can see it, yeah. I can see it in the book. Right, yeah. okay. The one I'm looking at, you can't really see it. But no, I, I didn't hold back anything except the, his, his face. Because as I said, during this time or before, I was a printer and I know how if you make a print, once the ink hits it, it's going to become darker nine times out of ten, even with Rappaport, with his duotone printing. On, on the next page is, <laughs> is a pretty... Great image. I, I, I think it's a little bit funny. It's a man on the back of his jacket. It is referencing Adam, Adam Clayton Powell, the, the Harlem congressman. Why this picture? Well, that was based on a, a Martin Luther King's philosophy of, you know, peace and, you know, and love your fellow man and judge a man by his content and not his, by his color of his skin. And that was to don't, you know, keep the faith, still believe in Martin Luther King. That was another photograph that was a gift. This was taken in front of uh, Mr. Michelle's bookstore on 125th Street and 7th Avenue. I think it was probably taken the same night as the man crying. I would have to go back to my contact sheet. It, it could be read, uh, you know, because presumably Adam Clayton Powell had these, these jackets or whatever they are printed up. Powell was, you know, a major figure, of, of course, but also was sometimes seen as, as a bit of an assimilationist. It almost could be read as a picture of, of Powell trying to, to snuggle up to Dr. King's legacy. It could be, but I, I never even thought about anything like that until you just mentioned it. But I, I, I think the people who saw it, but the man who's wearing this jacket has on a, one of the, uh, the, the Muslim-type caps also. He does. So I, it, it's, a, it's a kind of tricky photograph, but it definitely was really geared towards keep the faith, you know, still believe in Martin Luther King out of all by him being even being assassinated you still keep the faith of you know you, your fellow man love peace and love uh, that's the phrase they didn't use that phrase then i don't think but that's what it really was about facing that picture is you know a a classic street photograph it's a, a man against a bright light and some steam coming up from i'm guessing a city street and he appears to be slouching no, in fact, I, I, I have to be corrected when I said these photographs were taken in Harlem, except the one of the, the woman in Central Park. No, this photograph was taken on Houston Street, and this man was a, a part of a group of men who I guess doing yeah homeless, and they were just burning uh, uh, garbage cans with food in them and trash to keep warm. And this photograph was my comment on the whole thing from James Baldwin: the fire the next time. But obviously, to you, it didn't come out as fire. It just came out something as steam. But I, I saw it as fire, and it was like the fire the next time. So it was connected to Keep the Faith. The page, the last photograph is the fire the next time. So how did the annuals get out into the world? How were they offered? How were they sold? And, and who acquired them? What happened was, you know, I, I still do it to a certain extent. I go to photography shows and go to Barnes and Nobles and Strand bookstore and look through photography books. And we found out that that light work, they the they were the ones who were distributing all the photography I don't want to say all majority of photography magazines. And books rather. So Joe Crawford got in touch with Light Work. 
uh, Light Impressions, I'm sorry, Light Impressions. They would, I don't know if they're still in business now or not. They were distributing distributing all the uh, majority of photography books, et cetera, et cetera. So Joe uh, Crawford got in touch with the Light Work, uh, Light Impressions. And so they took on the Black Photographers Annual. They did the distribution. And what happened after maybe two volumes or whatever, Joe Crawford said, you know what, Buford? We can do this ourselves. Because the Light Impressions, they were taking uh, 60%, 40% of the annual. So we said, okay, we'll do it ourselves. So we started distributing the annual ourselves. We had gotten a, a, a lot of publicity and uh, write-ups. We had shows in Russia, France, I think Czechoslovakia. Not too, I don't know if it was Czechoslovakia during this time, but, but all over Europe we had gotten shows. So we were doing the, uh, the publicity ourselves and the distribution. In fact, the annuals were kept at Joe Crawford's house on 55 Hick Street in Brooklyn. And people, when they saw the, you know, the address, they started going to Joe Crawford's house. <laughs> Joe, it's kind of funny. Joe had a three-room apartment, and one room, his bedroom, was full of annuals. And he said, Buford, you know, everybody's coming to my house. You know, they think this is a big business, et cetera, et cetera. But it was really like Joe Walford, Joe Walker, Joe Crawford, and myself. So. Joe said, you know what, we have to change, oh, well, I, I'm kind of jumping here, but I just threw that little, little bit in. But we did this ourselves, and I have a whole slew of PR work and reviews, et cetera, that we've gotten reviews all over the world concerning the Black Towers Annual. And we didn't make any money, but we didn't lose any either. And it was only selling for, what, five ninety-five or $12 or something during that time. I wanted to ask you about Prentice Polk. P.H. Polk. Virtually all of the pictures in all four annuals are, you know, roughly contemporary to when when the books were printed. Polk was born in the late 19th century in, in Alabama, and I think the pictures of his in the book are, are significantly older. How did he come to be in the annual? Well, that was through Chester Higgins, a photographer. He knew uh, Mr. Polk from uh, uh, Tennessee. So he got in touch with uh, Joe Crawford and told Joe Crawford about Mr. Polk. And so that's how Mr. Polk got into the uh, Black, his photographs were in, in the Black Photographers Annual. Matter of fact, we did an exhibit of Mr. Polk's work and I printed about maybe 10 of his photographs during this time. That's uh, a little known also that uh, Mr. Polk and Joe Crawford and I, we became pretty close friends, but Mr. Polk would call, he was closer to Joe than, than I, but, uh, but Mr. Polk would call me like 2 o'clock in the morning, and he would just talk about ladies. He he didn't talk about photography. He was a <laughs> ladies' man. <laughs> but anywho, that's how we got to uh, Mr. Polk. Very nice man, very, very sweet man. In, in, in fact, he, in fact, I concerning the exhibit we did of his work at the Studio Museum in Harlem. He signed the uh, the program saying, one day, uh, Buford, I hope I'm as, as good as you. So, you know, he was funny. He, you know, I'd say, well, I'm, I'm a, I take this, Mr. Polk, you know, but he was a, a, a giant of a photographer. And we found out about Mr. Polk through Chester Higgins. It is 40 years after, after the annuals were published. The first one was 73. The last one was 1980. What's it like to see them being re-engaged with public and museum interests 
in them again. It's it's unbelievable. You know, I'm, I'm not stunned. I, well, maybe I am, because I've always believed in the annuals, and but I never thought it would come to this. But it's also it's it, it's it's a it's a bittersweet recognition in the sense that it wouldn't have come about if Lou Draper hadn't passed and if he hadn't been you know born in Virginia. I don't think this this would have happened. But what happened with uh, Sarah uh, Eckhart, she was, you know, doing an exhibit of Lou Draper's work, and she came across the Black Photographer's Annual. And then she got in touch with me, and, you know, everything started, started snowballing. So it's really, if, if you know, Lou Draper, which was a dear friend and one of the founders of Kamongi, if he hadn't passed, that this probably, probably would have never would have happened, which is sad to say. But I'm glad it did in a, in a sense but not at the expense of, of Lou Draper passing. Well, we'll have links to all four of, of the annuals. Listeners can, can click through them, each one, each, each of the four, page by page. And then, and then we'll, of course, also have images of, of the pictures we discussed on unmannedpodcast.com. Buford Smith, thanks so much. Thank you. Focus, Catherine Bradford, is on view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition features all new work. Bradford is known for her vibrant palette and eccentric compositions. While simple in form, her ongoing series of nocturnal paintings exhibits a range of colors such as orange, neon green, and pink violet that glow and illuminate the otherwise dark scenes. Her recent works revisit several of her favored motifs, such as Ships and Swimmers, traditional and enduring subjects seen throughout art history, through January 14th. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents The Medici's Painter, Carlo Dolci and 17th Century Florence, the first American exhibition of Dolci's work. A favorite of the Medici court, Dolci was a celebrated and popular artist in his time, but his original and personal interpretation of sacred subjects fell out of favor in later centuries. The meticulously painted and emotionally charged works in the exhibition come from U.S. museums, private collections, and major European museums, and allow for an overdue reassessment of an old master painter. Carlo Dolci at the Nasher Museum at Duke University, on view through January 14, 2018. Visit nasher.duke.edu for more. This fall, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Radical Women, Latin American art 1960 to 1985, including more than 280 works created by 120 artists and collectives from 15 different countries, the exhibition highlights the contributions of Latin American, Latina, and Chicana women to contemporary art. Radical Women is part of Pacific Standard Time LALA, an initiative of the Getty with arts institutions across Southern California, exploring Latin American and Latino art in dialogue with Los Angeles. Radical Women, Latin American Art, 1960-1985, on view September 15th to December 31st at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Welcome back. The second segment of this week's show will be a little different from our usual interview format. That's because the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh has come up with a new way of exhibiting work from its Teeny Harris archive. Charles Harris, known as Teeny, photographed Pittsburgh's African-American community for the Pittsburgh Courier, one of the nation's oldest black newspapers, 
from about 1935 until about 1975. The Carnegie's archive of almost 80,000 pictures makes up one of the most thorough records of the black experience and of the rise and decline of an American city anywhere in the United States. The Carnegie has exhibited work from the archive extensively in recent years. Its latest presentation is titled Teeny Harris Photographs in Their Own Voice. It pairs 25 of Harris's pictures with the voices and testimony of the people who live the histories captured within them. The exhibition is on view at the Carnegie through January 28th next year, but it also lives on an app that's available on both Apple and Android devices. The app is called Not As It Is. There are links to it on this week's show page at manpodcast.com. Thanks to the generosity of Ben Houston of the Remembering African American Pittsburgh Project at Carnegie Mellon University and CMU's Center for African American Urban Studies and the Economy, we're able to share with you the audio from six of the pictures in the exhibition right here on the podcast. The Carnegie has provided us with all six pictures, and we've put them on manpodcast.com, so be sure to go and have a look. Finally, we'll hear about these pictures in almost chronological order. Only the first picture is out of order, and not by much. The titles of the pictures that I'll read were not Harris's. They were assigned by the Carnegie. The first picture is Brick Wall of Pittsburgh Railways Company Shops, with graffiti reading Nigger, Monkey, Darky, Homewood and Frankstown Avenues, Homewood, August 1955. The audio features Salah Udin, a former Pittsburgh city councilman and freedom writer. I think stumbling over self-doubt, um, but trying to struggle as best they could and trying to model what we thought the struggle looked like in Detroit and Chicago and Newark and New York and Los Angeles and Atlanta a weaker struggle because we lack the numbers and the power. We lack the political power, we lack the economic power, and we are locked into this struggle with very racist Pittsburghers um, and a large poor white community who got dumped out of the steel mills and who blame black people for their misery. So there's a lot of black, white, face-to-face tension. Fortunately, it doesn't erupt into confrontation because the city is so physically segregated. But when they do interact, in public transit, at work, downtown, in places, the tension is thick. So blacks in Pittsburgh could never be as much as we really wanted to be because we could never get above 30% of the population. Next up, members of Pittsburgh Housing Authority and politicians pulling rope attached to pillar of dilapidated house with workers on porch, porch roof, and roof, Kirkpatrick Street, Hill District, 1951. We'll hear from Carl Redwood, a lifelong activist for social and economic justice who sits on the board of the Hill District Consensus Group, which works to advance a historically black collection of neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. In the years before World War I, the Hill District was the center of Pittsburgh's black life and a major center of American jazz. In the mid-1950s, the city targeted it for so-called redevelopment, forcing the displacement of 8,000 mostly black Pittsburghers and initiating the neighborhood's economic decline. At one point it was called Little Haiti, 
as because it was mainly an African-American enclave on the hillside sitting up above downtown. Um, so uh, some of the first inhabitants here, even before they took them over and divided them up into plots and gave them away to white people, were African-Americans who lived here. Um, and by the 1950s, the center of the African-American community in western Pennsylvania, your finger would come right down in the Hill District you know, if mm -hmm. you looked at the center. Um, that was destroyed with the urban renewal, uh, which forcibly moved out so, so many people. In, in 1950s, there were 50,000 people lived in the Hill. By 1970, it was 28,000. The population was really uh, decimated here. A lot of people think the decline of the hill was based on the riots in 1968. The wow. decline was the decline of the population. When the population went down, the stores could no longer be supported by a much smaller population. A lot of the stores left. There was some damage in 1968, but most of the damage was done 1957 and 1962 when they built the lower hill. It had deep repercussions for the black community, not just in the hill, but in western Pennsylvania. That's when people got scattered to Homewood, Wilkinsburg, uh, prior, you know, prior to that time, well, there weren't black people in Wilkinsburg hardly, but everybody got forced out of here and moved east pretty much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I digress, that's historical stuff. Our next picture is crowd, including Greta Richardson, fourth from right, holding signs inscribed, Andy Jackson need not have died, and detour speedway closed for lack of lights and police protection, taken on Webster Avenue near Morgan Street in the Hill District in August 1951. The corresponding audio is from Fred Logan, a longtime Homewood resident who has written commentaries for the New York Amsterdam News, the Review of Black Political Economy, and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. A unified community has to come out of a struggle. And, you know, um, unity in the absence of struggle doesn't mean anything. You know, if, if that's just some people... Uh, uh, how do you say it humorously? Corona uh, uh, said that's just that's just hanging out. Mm -hmm. That's just some people, you know, just standing around. Uh, unity has to, it has to be people working together toward a common objective. I do think though that uh, contrary to the myth that black people do unite all the time. You know, Paul Robeson said that. Paul Robeson said something to you know that Negroes do unite and they uh, achieve some. Um, how do you say it? I don't know if it's, 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 it's in a here I stand. But um, it's just that in terms of uh, the unity of the community, uh, unity takes different forms depending on, of course, what, what the objective is. And you don't have to unite all the people. All you need to do is get enough people together to win your objective. And that's determined by what the objective is. You know. Uh, and so, but then, like, when you win, you know, it's not the, you haven't reached uh, the end of history. You have won that struggle, and then there's another struggle. One of the most striking images in the exhibition is of an elderly woman reading Teeny Harris's own paper, the Pittsburgh Courier. The banner headline on the paper reads, Reverend King Freed, Albany Tents. The reference was to the Reverend Martin Luther King's second appearance in Albany, Georgia, in the summer of 1962. The Albany campaigns marked a major turning point for King's involvement in and approach to the civil rights struggle. Before Albany, he routinely distanced himself from demonstrations, but in December of 1961, King joined a peaceful protest in Albany, was swept up in a wave of arrests, and declined bail until the city made concessions to the protesters, concessions on which the city immediately reneged. In July of 1962, eight months later, when Harris made this picture, 
King returned to Albany to be sentenced to 45 days in jail or the payment of a $178 fine. King chose jail. The white police chief in Albany quietly arranged for King's $178 fine to be paid so as to get King out of town. This is the Reverend J. Lavon Kincaid. So he's a very humble person, uh, a down-to-earth person in, in the fact that he understood the big issues. He understood what he was about. He understood about the need for social change in America, uh, relevant to the Constitution, relevant to uh, a need for a change and shift in American society. But at the same time, he could articulate that in terms where a person who could not read their name on paper would be able to understand mm -hmm. clearly what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. And that was a genius to me. And the second impression, he had a great depth of faith, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he was a Baptist minister, the son of a Baptist minister, the grandson of a Baptist minister. But his faith was very deep, uh, his faith in God, his trust in God, and his belief in God were just uh, at the top of, 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 I think, his value system. Uh, his family, of course, was uh, something uh, very close and dear to his heart, but many of us felt many times that he may have uh, seen his family as uh, a lower value because he was on a mission that everyone knew after a certain point the threats upon his life that he could be eliminated uh, at any time. But he was a person, uh, thirdly, that seemingly had little fears. If he had them, he, he certainly camouflaged them. He, he did not let that be known with those around him. Mm. Uh, not that he was a martyr, not that he had a messianic complex, I don't think but he just didn't exhibit a lot of fears. He was a man that walked with faith. However, um, he was a person that uh, once you were with him in private was not the serious, was not always the serious person that you would actually see in the public, but he knew how to relax. He would loosen his tie, uh, he'd take his shoes off, and uh, he would just, so he was human, mm -hmm. very much human. The next picture is a picture of police officers, including Sam Karam, in riot gear pursuing individuals in crowd with Washington, 1968. It's full of tension. It appears to have been taken in the wake of Dr. King's assassination. We'll hear from Eric Springer, a Pittsburgh attorney and a trustee of several nonprofit institutions, including the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I remember I was very angry about yeah. the assassination, mm -hmm. but I was also angry by, about the authorities yeah. and by the youngsters in the black community. And I remember yelling and arguing with some of the firebrand, or the expression, firebrand kids who were so angry and frustrated that they were going to go downtown and burn up people, and, and, but they were doing it in the Hill District. And I remember saying to one firebrand kid, God damn it, if you want to burn something, you go downtown and burn Gimbel's. Don't burn Miss Brown's house. You know, don't burn Sadie's house or the, yeah. the local grocery store, family grocery store. Because it was self-destructive. But one of our, one of our heritages, in a, if that's a word, in the United States is that the oppressed often do things to destroy themselves. Uh, they're so angry at this, this 
bitterness, this corrosive bitterness, and you can't fight Mr. Charlie because he's got all the guns and the Marines and stuff. So you beat each other up, or you beat yourself up. You drink, you do things dangerous, you get into dangerous behavior. And that's still a pattern we see. We're worried about our lost youth in the cities. And they weren't okay, because when the Hill District had already been emasculated with this arena thing, it was yeah. then, urban renewal means Negro removal. And, and uh, there was still, at the time, uh, only hope that Martin generated few people going across, but for most people it was still, the dream was unrealized, mm -hmm. but it was being articulated, and then for them, he did to shoot him, to kill him. Mm -hmm. um, he was our only hero. I mean, he was the nationally, internationally prominent, mm -hmm. and he was shot down like a dog. Finally, a powerful picture of members of Black Berets of Homewood leading a protest march against discrimination in construction jobs. The picture was taken on Fifth Avenue in Oakland in August 1969. The voice you'll hear is that of John L. Ford, who is an historian at the Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall and Museum. As we progressed in black knowledge, those, no those walls were knocked down temporarily. As a matter of fact, you could raise a clenched fist in Homewood and do a handshake in Homewood and do that ham sh same handshake in Jamaica, mm. in Nigeria, in the Hill District because it was black power. Mm. That's when we had unity and there was not that fear of uh, the, the separate, separate neighborhoods like it was in the uh, uh, late 50s, early 60s. It mm. was starting to get torn down because of this black consciousness that was taking place mm. and taking over. Black kids were taking over the neighborhood from older black people. We looked upon each other because of this knowledge that we were gaining. We looked upon each other as brothers and sisters truly. And it, it, it was no lie that you could walk down the street and say, hey brother, and have a conscious thought hey, somewhere down the line, he is my brother mm. because we came through the Middle Passage and enslavement, and who knows, we could be connected, you know. Uh, this was a, a heavy thought process. And don't forget at the time, all of this thinking in this country was reinforced because the entire continent of Africa was becoming free. Ghana became independent mm -hmm. in 58 from colonial powers. Mm -hmm. And all of these African countries were becoming free and we're becoming free. Uh, this was a whole movement. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it, it was global. Mm -hmm. And no one sees that now. You were black. You were proud. James Brown was singing Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Mm -hmm. But it was just totally, completely black. And it's just so different mm -hmm. than what you have now. Mm -hmm. So all of this was going on all over the world. Again, you can find all six pictures and links to the show and the apps on manpodcast.com. Thanks to the Carnegie and Ben Houston for their help. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information.
Thanks for listening.